0: Learn more at marines.com.
1: Well, it's been a story that's uh, captivated sports fans around the country and around the world, even if you're not the biggest supporter or biggest follower of rugby, and that is that Eddie Jones' time, highly unsuccessful time, you'd have to say, is now over. Peter Fitzsimons, Sydney Morning Herald rugby columnist and rugby commentator, of course, former Wallaby. He's been covering the Eddie Jones story, he spoke to Eddie last week. He's been good enough to give us a few minutes of his time. Uh, thanks for your time, Peter.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm having a lovely time.
1: Where where we find you, by the way?
0: Well, I'm, I've, I've come out of Paris and I'm in regional France having a rest. Oh, that's <laughs> <I'm> pretty <laughs> exhausted after that World Cup.
1: Absolutely, and uh, it was a fantastic uh, final on the weekend, which we might touch on. But now that it's it's all over for Eddie Jones, you spoke to him. You've been had correspondence with him. How do you feel about uh, it all now that it is actually all over?
0: Look, I'm sad, obviously, for you know the way it's worked out. But I'm mostly, I guess, befuddled. I just cannot figure how a man of his accomplishment and I've, you know, I've been a fierce critic of Eddie during this World Cup. But I was not a fierce critic when he was put in the put in the job. I mean, the background of Eddie. I played with and against Eddie in the 1980s, and I know him very well. This guy turned into the messiah of world rugby coaching. He took over the Bumbies, I think it was 2000, 2001, uh, thereabouts. And he you know, he, got, he got them, they won the super title. He, he took over the Wallabies. They got to the 2003 World Cup final, only missed by a field goal, being World Cup champions. In 2007, he was assistant coach to the Springboks they won. In 2015, he coached Japan to beat South Africa. I mean, the most unheard of thing anybody had ever heard of. So he then, in that year, he takes over the English side that didn't make the pool stage, and within then he he takes them over. They win the next eighteen tests straight, and he coaches them to thump the All Blacks in the semi-finals in 2019. Gets to the final, you know, admitting they didn't win the final. My point being, this bloke had a track record of accomplishment in coaching. I described him in the Herald as a cross between the messiah of world rugby coaching and a human cattle prod. It made sense to put him in charge of a Wallaby team that had talent but no huge performance. And what I cannot understand is how a man at that level of accomplishment coached the flaming clown car of a wallabies team we saw in this World Cup.
1: So what was his biggest mistake? Was it, as some have said, basically trying to rebuild during a World Cup? Was that one of his big mistakes?
0: before I before I answer, let me say that analysis of rugby has never been my strong point. When I was a player, <laughs> I liked to pick up the ball and run into other blokes. I was less fussed on them running into me. But I'm not really a rugby analyst, and I'm not qualified at you know the way they play modern rugby. I've got no clue what they're talking about. They seem to me to talk gibberish. But but you know it's way beyond my my ken. But I say this: that when I went to the Wallaby training before the World Cup started. It was on the edge of Paris. It was my first wallaby training in 20 years. And I am quite stunned to see out on the field, 30 players with at least as many support staff. If you counted up physio people, baggage people, defense coach, attack coach, scrum coach, line-out coach, mall coach, God knows what coaches. You had one support person, one coach, for every person on the field. There were two drones in the sky, filming the training, two blokes with computers up one end of the field in a marquee, crunching numbers about God knows what. And so when you say, what what, what are them? What, what I can say is this, even on my limited understanding, I don't understand how you have drones in the sky and that level of sophistication. And yet, when the game time comes and you're up against Fiji, Fiji puts the ball up five minutes into the second half and it lands among the Wallaby backs and nobody called out. Mine. Now in rugby union, and <laughs> I, I don't know if it's in I don't know if you do it in Aussie rules, but when you're in the under 12 As or the under 12 Bs, you, that's what you're taught. You know, the ball goes up, somebody's got to shout. Yep. Mine. Mm-hmm. Well, nobody nobody shouted mine. The ball bounced. The Fiji regathered. They scored the try. They won the game, and that was the end of it. And and well, before they won the game against Fiji. With seven minutes to go, with one minute to go, sorry, they were seven points behind. At that point, the Wallabies had one hope, just one hope, of getting a draw. They had to hold the ball, they had to charge towards the line, recycle it, keep going, nobody spill it, you'll score. They didn't. They kicked it, and I said to Tim Horan, who's you know one of the finest yep. rugby, well probably the finest rugby brain in the. The country. I said, you know, Tim, I never understood rugby, but I understand this. Somebody's got to shout out mine, and when you've got a minute to go and you're seven points behind, you don't kick it. Is, is that has it changed, or is that still will go? And he said, you're absolutely right. It was insane. And so, how did they play that badly? One answer is they wiped out huge levels of experience. So Michael Hooper played 118 tests, the long-time captain. No, can't come. You're not, you're not, you're not coming. Quade Cooper and Bernard Foley probably have 118 tests between them, something like that. They've been around a long time, seriously experienced 5'8". No, you're not coming. And they gave it to a young fellow, Carter Gordon, who, to be fair to him, shows huge amounts of talent, but you know had no experience. And so, how did? And I, I think he, I think you know Carter Gordon, to be fair, will be very good, but. The answer is you had the youngest, most... Exp- I think there were 15, 15 players picked in that 30 who hadn't played as many as five tests. So in all the World Cup squads, in the whole World Cup, we were the youngest and the least experienced. So that's some explanation. So that's one of the biggest mistakes that was made. And in this World Cup, the 5'8", the number 10 on his back, the one that takes the ball from the half-back, is pretty pretty close to being the quarterback. You know, very close to being the most important player in the team, the one that guides them around the field, kicks it downfield, kicks goals, decides a lot of the tactics and strategies. And it, you, it really cried out for experience. And we just didn't have any.
1: So, Peter, how's it play out from here? How should Australian rugby fans feel if Eddie goes and coaches Japan? And will there be... Potential repercussions for those at Rugby Australia that hired Eddie Jones.
0: Well, there's there's all well. Look, we're a place from here. I've been you know going back and forth with Eddie, and I had a, well, I, I got I don't know if I've ever had a reaction like I got to an interview I did with him uh, three days ago, four days ago, but yep. now where I, we didn't talk as you know professional journalist with professional coach. We talked as old teammates of you know cut the bullshit, talk to me, mate. What, what's 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 going on? And him saying, I'm not talking bullshit. I'm telling you the truth. You know, like we're talking like that, like two old mates, which we are. And we went hard. I, you know, I said, you, you take strike at the Ram Weekend. I'll go steam in from the Paddington End and put some, put some bounces around your ears. And we talked about Japan. And he said that the story in the Herald, you know, that he'd been talking to Japan, absolute nonsense. I said, well, I don't think it is absolute nonsense mm. at the Herald. We don't put stuff on the front page and, or anywhere unless we're damn sure of it, it's particularly not something of that sensitivity. He insisted it was nonsense. But then I said to him at the end, I said, Eddie, just imagine that in four years' time, I, you you are the uh, unlikely event, but let's just say you're the CEO of Australian Rugby. And let's just say that I'm the coach of Australian Rugby, very much more unlikely but that it's put printed in The Herald that I've been talking to South Africa to, about coaching the swing box, and I absolutely deny it, but it turns out I've been lying through my teeth. Let's just say that's the scenario. What would you do as CEO? would you be entitled to sack me? And Eddie's answer was, I'm not quoting you exactly, but no, you wouldn't be uh, he wouldn't be entitled to sack me in that case. He would ask, had my commitment wavered? Had I been distracted? Had I been hiding away, sneaking off to meetings? If I I had remained committed, that wouldn't be a sackable offence. So as you can see, that was a slightly contradictory answer. You know, on the one hand, no, I haven't been talking to them. On the other hand, no, you wouldn't be sackable. Now, you work for SCN. If on the QT you'd been talking to 3AW or whoever about being hired by them, I work for the Herald in the unlikely event that I was on the quiet talking to the Australian, neither of those is dismissible offences. It happens in the professional Mm -hmm. world that you're working for one organisation while you're talking to another on the QT. Um, In rugby, it's a bit different. I mean, in this situation, I don't think it's probably legally different, but, well, I'm sure it's not legally different, but in this situation, when you've been hired for five years to resuscitate Australian rugby, it's pretty grim if six months in, you're talking to another organisation that you risk playing against in the quarterfinals about playing for them. And, you know, it, the whole thing was so problematic, very distracting for the Wallabies. And as we can see, one way or another, the whole thing turned into a disaster.
1: Do you think you'll coach Japan?
0: Look, Eddie, Eddie and I were furiously texting each other yesterday morning because I, he'd talked to me off the record, um, whatever it was, 24 hours ago, uh, you know about what where the situation was up to, and then I said to him, I texted him yesterday morning and said, look, mate, I'm not breaching any confidences, but this this is about to go live at the Herald. We've got independent sources, so I seek your leave to use your your off the record quotes to put them in the public domain. And he came back, and one of the of the quotes that he gave me. One was, I'm not going to Japan. I've got no... What he says was, I've got no job offer. I accept that he has no Mm. absolute... You know, there's no... He hasn't got a contract in front of him that he's about to sign. Uh, But he is going... I mean, the Herald's been running... I think they've been saying that the week after... Next week, I think the Herald... Well, the Herald's been saying that there's a second round of job interviews um, and the supposition in, in Japan for the leading candidates and the supposition is that eddie will be be at those now eddie has said to me and i put this in the herald he'll be on holiday in japan at that time and i mm-hmm. i said in the paper jesus eddie what are the chances <laughs> what are the chances we are the herald saying you're going to be, be be in japan for for a second interview you say you're going to be there on holidays well that's convenient mm-hmm. trip. but he says no job jo- no job offer no plans will he end up as japanese coach I I don't know. You'd think given the disaster that Australian rugby's gone through in the last little while, you might be a bit reluctant to, as the Japanese rugby union to sign him up. On the other hand, I cannot overstate how highly regarded Eddie is in Japan and the success he has had. When he coached in the most famous rugby victory, pretty pretty close to the most famous rugby victory of all time, is Japanese beating South Africa in 2015? I mean, it was inspirational. It was unbelievable, and it wouldn't have happened without Eddie Jones. It, you know, I think Eddie had had them at that point for two years, and he wasn't saying, you know, we're going to win the World Cup, but he was saying, on on the, on the 17th of August, we're going to beat the we're going to beat South Africa, and this is how we're going to do it, and this is what we're going to train for for the next two years. And they did. And they trained for South Africa for two years and they beat them. So his share price, while his share price in Australia used to be $10.75, blue chip. Right now, it's, I don't know, it's down to $2.63. He's still got a hell of a track record like nobody else. But his share price in Australia is way down. But I suspect in Japan, his share price remains sky high because... He's the one that's got the best performance out of the Japanese team in history, and yet he says no job, no job offer, no plan. So it's hard to pick it.
1: Just quickly, Peter, before we go, I believe you've got a new book out. Uh, just quickly tell us what it's about and where can we get a hold of it?
0: Good on you. I want any bookstore near you, et cetera. It's the Australian Light Horse, and it focuses on... It's it's the history of the Australian Light Horse in the First World War, and it focuses on the last charge at Beersheba, which is the... It's known as the last charge. There were actually charges thereafter, but this was the phenomenal story of, of 800 Australian horsemen of the Australian Light Horse. The sun's going down and they charge hard straight at the Turkish guns, and and what happens? I I must say, of all the books I've done, done, that's one of the ones I've enjoyed most. I found it absolutely extraordinary. There's so many Australians that are descended, have a grandfather or a great-grandfather that was in the Australian Light Horse, that don't quite understand what it was all about. This book is what it's all about.
1: Sounds like a great Christmas present to me. Peter, thank you so much for your time, Mark. Enjoy a nice little break in France.
0: Thank you. Bye-bye.